Hello and welcome to today's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and our ESG series continues. Um, We're going to focus on the S and the G, having done a lot on on climate over the last few episodes. And we're going to be talking to a few really interesting characters today with very different outlooks uh, and and hugely exciting insights, hugely exciting experiences that that we're going to be covering off. Um, and and in, I guess in looking at social value, we, we really want to think about how it's measured, what impact companies can have, and how that should feed into decision making, both in policy and uh, in, in how investors and, and developers think about the cities that we live in. So we're going to be joined by Wesley Ankara, who's the founder at Searbridge, and that's a consultancy that specialises in measuring social value. We're also going to be speaking today by Shane Shapiro, uh, an old friend of mine from my music days when I was much thinner and better looking. Um, and, and Shane works extensively right across the world uh, in the music industry. He's worked, uh, initially used to be an ambassador for Canada's music scene and uh, launched Sound Diplomacy some years back who advise cities, public sector organisations and municipalities around music policy, around how they can shape the music sector in their area. And uh, and, and, and last, um, last but not least, we're going to be joined by Vestalia Chilton, who's director of the Kensington and Chelsea Art Week, where she's looking at ways to innovatively bring together the worlds of art, culture, and, and using them not just as tools to pave over the cracks in the high street, but really to, to bring people back in, drive footfall, drive interest. And, and she's going to talk a little about how, uh, how real estate firms and landlords could be better engaging with that side of the world to help them and help everybody really um, bring bring a little bit of color and a little bit of fun and a little bit of positivity back to 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 local environments. So look, let's get cracking. Um, Vistalia, you you've been you know you've been very active over the last few months with some of your work uh, in the west of London. Tell us a little bit about how uh, you know how, what you've been doing. How have you got into this? Yeah, there's been quite a lot of coverage in the press for the High Street Windows project that we've just um, been doing. Um, essentially, we, commi- we were commissioned by the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea Council to deliver eight windows in empty store, uh, stores across uh, High Street Kensington, South Kensington and various sec- sec- um, areas in uh, Kensington and Chelsea. Um, so the project was stretched over during uh, COVID lockdown. And as you can imagine, a lot of people were walking around, discovering the streets, reinventing the street was what our approach was for this. And we invited uh, various artists specifically focusing on different uh, levels of their career. Some were graduates, some were local artists, some were international artists. And they came up with some incredible designs for the windows. And those, most of the designs were linked to the local heritage. So the, the questions were, the questions were uh, what's going on? How do you feel about the local heritage? What do you know about the local heritage, the local history? And so they used that as the springboard for some of their designs. Um, and so in December, some of the windows went live. We're still producing others. Um, and it was a very gloomy time. And I guess uh, everybody was really happy that they went live at that point because it was getting dark at 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And some of the windows actually lit up behind with different colors so as you walk down these empty streets you have a bit of color and excitement and maybe positive impact so that was that was a good project that we've just done so and as well let's bring in wes so wes you and i've worked together uh well i don't know how long it is now six years seven years uh we've got we've got the scars to prove it <laughs> and, and and the wrinkles and the you you don't have any gray hairs yet but uh i shaved yeah, them off andrew so that, well, that, yeah exactly exactly um but but so you know you went out on your own a few years ago with searbridge 
uh, looking at social value. So, so again, thinking about some of the stuff that Vestalia is talking about, how, how does how does that kind of initiative fit into the sorts of work that you do? And, and again, when when people are thinking about measurement, whether that's you know a, a city mayor or a or a, a real estate investor, how, how do these sorts of things then compute and end up on on a spreadsheet? Well, it's, it's so vitally important that we actually include art and culture in the social value conversation. And actually, it isn't included enough at the moment because people are so fixated on measurement. And they're so fixated on the proxies, values that an employment opportunity may produce. Because actually, yes, it's easy to work out by looking at HM Treasury and sort of, you know, Office of National Statistics data that says you can create this much value by giving someone a job. But you, how do you really quantify in pounds and, and pence how much value you create by a great art installation on a high street or a great sculpture in a new kind of um, apartment block in a, in a kind of placemaking capacity. It's hard to, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I think what I struggle with at the moment is that because there's such a race to, to market for different social value toolkits and products and they see employment and skills or they see volunteering time or they see sort of corporate donations as an easy, quick win... Actually, we are completely overlooking the importance of, of kind of, you know, art and culture within within place and space. But I think actually COVID has changed this somewhat. I think now people, have, as Vasali uh, has just been saying, have rediscovered what their communities are about by just walking around them because they're actually so much more connected to them now by not going to the big out-of-town supermarkets and buying local. And people are noticing these things. And actually, that's where the value is, is coming in. So I think there's got to be more of an incentive and drive from institutions to start coming up with new proxies and new valuation methods to capture and measure this impact. And currently, that's just not happening. Yeah, um, and Shane Shapiro, um, you know, another old mate, it feels a bit of a boys club. So sorry, Vistal, you're a little bit, bit outpaced today, but we'll, we'll balance it out over the next few weeks, don't, don't worry. Um, so Shane and I met uh, about 15 years ago. Uh, I came down one morning and he was asleep on my sofa. Um, better true. looking than most of the people I'd find sleep on my sofa often um, and, and, and Shane and I bonded over our love of Canadian music which he was he was hawking around London at the time and, and still is um, but, but in recent years Shane you've kind of followed me into real estate and, and have been yeah. advising all sorts of people um, really glamorous people right across the world around their, their music policies um, what does it mean it, it seems a bit bit of a weird one um and and yeah. to, to be able to say you advise cities on music what does that mean well uh, the the simple thing is that you know music is an ecosystem like anything else so music um the the role of music in a community uh it it impacts all sorts of areas of a community so you know, because music is our universal language. We all speak it, we all experience it. And, but the problem is, is that music tends to be governed by things that have absolutely nothing to do with it, like environmental health. And, and licensing and planning. And licensing and noise and so on. So when I say the word music, you guys all think a certain thing because you think based on the music that you like or your background or whatever. And so we tend not to think deliberately and intentionally about music as a holistic ecosystem in cities, really thinking about how it works economically, how it works in relation to other economic ecosystems, like, and most importantly, I believe, how it impacts the health and well-being of a city. And cities invest in music in one way or another. A lot of cities are landowners of, of real estate that is primarily used for music, concert halls, amphitheaters, things like that. Cities pay for festivals. Um, cities uh, 
you know, obviously they, they invest in other forms of what we would call music infrastructure, but it's never done in a way that really understands how music works in a city. So we tried to figure that out. Uh, I don't know if we've done a great job of it, but we've convinced a bunch of cities around the world. So we've done about 75 cities to really think intentionally about their music ecosystem. And what, what's that, the output what, of that? Because a lot of this sounds cool and it's quite abstract, but for people listening to this that are going to be a bit more yeah. cynical, that, so what, what's the outcome? So give us an example where you've worked with someone like New Orleans or London. Yeah, what, so, what have you given them? What, what have they gone for their money? So the, so the outcome, so there's a regulatory outcome, first off. So the regulatory outcome is something that can be measured in a number of different ways. So um, revising or fixing or reintroducing uh, or introducing, sorry, regulations that are supportive of music making, music business, and the music ecosystem, i.e., for example, we work with developers to save them money on planning applications in legal fees because we've worked with cities in advance to structure the rules around the nighttime economy and music in advance of a planning application. Uh, I helped create uh, the night czar job for the mayor's office in London, so that legitimized the nighttime economy as a thing in London that requires its own policy, its own practice, and its own budget. And that is, so to me, that's a result in recognizing a new economy as its own economy that needs its own policies and its own practice and its own objectives. And in addition, we built infrastructure in places. And in one of our cities that we work in in Alabama, we um, we did the math and discovered that there was a need for an amphitheater. So we went out and found someone who wanted to develop an amphitheater and we put the pieces together and now shovels are in the ground. And we, we have worked on really trying to incorporate music as well. And especially at COVID with COVID, it's really important because what, you know, everyone wants to get back to whatever our version of normal is. Our version of normal is congregating with each other and usually doing it in a noisy place in one way or another, whether we're eating food, listening to music, or doing a bit of both. And if we go back to the way things were, we're going to continue to rub up against each other even more in our town centers and in our downtowns and create, um, create a framework where housing and culture are not going to be bedfellows. They're going to be, they're going to antagonize each other. Yeah, so, well, we saw this I mean, in, in South London with Ministry of Sound development right next to Ministry of Sound where yeah. someone goes in, builds some flats and complains that there's a nightclub there. Oh dear, this night just, a, just, a, a, just popped up overnight. Yeah, there's a, and I'll, I'll shut up in a minute. There's a great example of a, of a city we work in in Alabama where there's been a music venue on the main, it's not a big city, 10,000 people. There's been a music venue on the main street for 30 years, and then someone literally next door decides to build a hotel. There's no rules uh, um, saying that they can't do that. The first person who checks into the room, the first night of their launch complains because there's been a cover band playing, and the venue's been open for 30 years. And it ends up in um, significant litigation. Over $3 million was spent by both sides. And then we came in and we rewrote the ordinance for the city to ensure that this would never happen again. And we believe that, you know, we're at least going to save people money by explaining that we can coexist if we think deliberately and intentionally about how we plan music and culture around our towns and cities rather than just saying, oh, that festival over there, that's great. Let's just have that. So that's... Yeah, it's a bit, it's a little bit, it's a little bit ridiculous sometimes, isn't it? I mean, Vestalio, from your perspective, you know, this, this, this need to, to drive coexistence and, and, and I guess drive meaningful interaction is something that 
that people do struggle with a little bit with the stuff that you do how do you avoid it being seen as as a as a sort of cynical sticking plaster you know like that i guess the point that some people would say is well you know the shops are all screwed the barbers are all shut the gyms are probably all going to close ah but it's fine we can bring in some artists and fill up the space like that that's all right you know You've touched on a really, really sensitive nerve there because um, that is essentially what these, the, a lot of the projects we get to do happen in that way. It's a sort of a sticking plaster. And what I'd love to see, and this is what Shane was kind of touching upon, um, places without people are just places. So it's always about the people. And it's been like that for forever. So whatever we do, any infrastructure we do, anything that we respond to or build or economy or, or design, we have to ask why and who are the people who are what's the audience that's going to use it so a lot of these planning matters that um, Shane raised that happened because nobody really thought about the city and who's going to use it for the city's benefit it's the people who are going to be using it so what I've seen um what I've been doing I've been doing what I've been doing I've been creating art projects like these and worked in Morocco worked in LA with a lot of urban street artists on the on the on the you know in the streets with the people and generally um it's always been on the on the uh, forgotten who are who who are going to be the people who are going to be using these streets and using the arts. So um, it's important to always think about the, the the person who's going to be living in the streets and how they're going to be using the streets. And one of the reasons why I was so interested in street street art movement was because art was suddenly um, very um, it, it got rid of the ivory tower uh, um, mentality it wasn't top-down dictatorship sorry to use that word it was about uh, the artist coming into the street doing something outside the red tape and if it didn't stay there they didn't mind you know it was there was no ownership of the space if um, if a mural stayed in the in the street for a week it was no problem to the artist if it stayed there for a year it was actually an acknowledgement that people really liked it and I really believe in that so I think the sticking blaster is something that I really feel uncomfortable with because we usually get to that point when it's too late what I'd love to see is actually planners and various project designers ask artists and local communities first about what they need what their needs are and then get planning and then get designing so that hotel should have never been built next to this next yeah, to the venue yeah, it'd be nice, like, you know, one of the things, why don't we have an artist in residence on a planning committee? Yeah. Or exactly a musician that. on a planning committee, or God forbid, a licensing committee. Well, we've got lots of 60 year old white people on lots of planning committees. I've sat for a few real brutal things over the last six months, have been the most painful things I've ever seen. Um, Wes, let's talk about that. I mean, um, in, in terms of the, 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 the demographics of planning, um, you know, this is something that you'll be attuned to, I'm sure, in terms of some of the projects that you've worked on. How how does this play out? This this lack of you know the, this this the the monotony of or the monotone nature of of planners, planning planning committees and and this lack of uh, you know, I guess lack of depth that Vistalia is talking about. Well, you you hit the nail on the head there with the fact that there's a real lack of diversity on the planning committee in the first place. And I think as you mentioned, there should be someone representing arts and culture as a statutory place on a planning committee. There should be a social value consultant on a planning committee sat there actually being able to evaluate the impact that an arts and culture project will have. And I'll give you an example of one that I worked on recently, which was an amazing project for a client that basically decided to hand over their hoarding to us to pull forward a, a project where we basically work with two local schools who are the neighbours. So from a planning point of view, you're engaging with your local stakeholders who are young people they did basically went through a period of looking at the heritage of the site. Uh, it was an industrial site, which had a lot of history around it. 
and actually what came out of the sessions that we delivered with local artists in the school. So we're bringing all these different stakeholders together. And then actually we had a local historian then do um, a massive kind of piece of work around the whole site and actually why it was good to see it come What forward. site was it? So who was the client? What was so the, the client was you and I. It was Richard Upson's site uh, over in Charlton. And it was amazing to kind of for us to be involved as a consultancy to bring all these different stakeholders together. I mean, it's great. I'm Richard Upton. He's you know he's got a great reputation for for being plugged into the creative side, and and he's you know he's one of these guys that you, that, that should be applauded. And, and it was it was it was amazing in the fact that the final finished article was an, a hoarding that had lots of sort of you know heritage photos of, of the site and you know the cabling that had been created by Siemens which was the original kind of um, factory on the site rather than just some god awful thing saying oh, we're considerate I mean, contractors I'll, I'll, we're not going to drop anything on your head it's yeah, fine I'll send you some pictures it's an amazing piece of artwork but ultimately it has no bearing on sort whether planning is going to be consented for that site or not and that's what really kind of irritates so, me so the point you're making then is that, is that you actually think that the planning policy should start to recognise the stuff and, and have some kind of requirement for this but then it kind of comes back to what you were saying earlier on mate because you know you were saying before actually we can't measure this stuff so how do you do it because you're kind of contradicting yourself a little bit you're saying on one hand uh, we need to be recognized in planning but on the other hand you're saying well look how do you put a value on our music so there's more ways to measure Andrew in my opinion you can measure with values or you can measure with benchmarking and actually I think you can measure this sort of stuff with benchmarking so for example looking at a music policy you can have a comparison across 20 different cities to say this is a great example of best practice of how to have the music policy that affects planning and design of, of a city and this is a really bad example and actually if you perform and you move this if you perform and move this way around how to deliver music or art or culture through planning you will gain maybe a quicker planning process or consents than people who don't take that into consideration when doing their delivery and save money and Shane yeah. Shapiro that, that's that's very much your well, bag isn't it you can you can measure through process that's one of the problems I see is is the sector and we get it all the time uh, you know and I'm I'm I come from the music industry but I no longer work in it because I don't work for any music companies I work for property developers in cities but I believe that the the way that you measure is by instituting frameworks and and having them over a period of time. If we had a musician or an artist or whatever, or a cultural entrepreneur on a planning committee, or again, God forbid, a licensing committee, because that is the elephant in the room in all of this, um, especially in the UK, that, that over time, as applications went through, that would, you know, we would be able to learn what's working and what's not. One of our big successes, so we did the music policy in Cardiff, and there's a music board now that we instituted. We even got a, a funded music officer position at the city council. COVID uh, has made that a 2022 thing rather than a 2021 thing, but fine. But one of the um, one of the wins that I'm proud of is the music board is now a, um, a statutory consultee on planning applications that are within, I think it's 500 yards uh, of a music premises of one, of some kind, so they can they can't stop it, but they can at least comment on it. And there's been two um, two applications that have come in of residential next to music venues that have been um, the the uh, noise and, and sound requirements of that residential premises have been uh, made more robust by the council because of the comments of the music board. And it's quite easy to do. I mean, that's the thing. Engineering-wise, it's not that it's not difficult. To, None of to, this is hard, <laughs> I, I mean, I think. 
I mean, I, I, the other thing that annoys me, I mean, and, and it's something I'll be asking in, in a few weeks' time, speaking with, with Brian Bickle, the boss of Shaftesbury, he'll, he'll be on a future episode of Propcast. Um, I mean, Soho is very close to my heart as a, as a musician and as a music fan of, of, of many years going going to Soho and hanging out in the West End. But you look at that, look at how it's been hollowed out over the years for all the reasons that we're discussing right now. And, and it's just a bit of a... Uh, a real disconnect between licensing policy uh, and and the reality. Why, why? I mean, one of the things that that I, I you know I think you know I get on my own high horse with this is is actually looking at some kind of active planning protection for for music venues, just as we have heritage protection for for listed buildings. You know, and we you know, look at some of the god awful architecture for Stadia that that we've protected over the last five years. Some really absolutely shitty 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 what i keep swearing uh, <laughs> there, there, are, there are there are some initiatives you know we're working with the the music venue trust on kind of looking at a but land, they're not land but they're not model. but they're not institutional though they're not they're not but it's but the 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 disconnect that we have in this country between planning and licensing is the core problem when it comes to culture that is the core problem but it's also a lack of any kind of recognition in statute that that this is an important thing that the whole point of the heritage lobby is is that yeah. we as a country take a decision that this building god awful or not is an important thing that needs to be not knocked down not you know using lots of double negatives liz hampson another field day with my terrible grammar here but 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 the point right is that, is that we take a decision that says this ghastly shopping center in milton Keynes should be kept so that future generations can quote unquote enjoy it now surely change Shapiro, we should have a similar uh, a, a similar stipulation regulation legislation whatever you say about music venues in urban environments yes i agree i think that that's not the that's not a panacea but yes like it's you know to me it's obviously the more protection of these premises especially when what happens inside these buildings is simply not of as much economic value as anything else that would happen inside the building if it was turned over for housing it's a grassroots music venue is a is a cultural is of cultural value a small grassroots music venue it is very very hard to make money just off the music you have to do all sorts of other things you know the the last study we did for every pound that gets pumped into a music venue it costs one pound 29 to pay for the music. So you have to do you have to do brand launches and stuff during the day. So obviously more protection is needed. The but we also need to think about there's there's much bigger issues. The reform of our leasehold freehold system. Um, business rates is a mess when it comes to music venues, I'm sure other commercial premises. And lastly, the fact that the the licensing act is all about bad shit. Right, there is nothing positive about the license act. Is about the four pillars, are about stopping things from happening. Right, protecting kids from harm, protecting society. There is nothing in the licensing act, i.e., the interpretation of it by licensing committees, that says that this has some sort of cultural value. There is no recognition of cultural or social value in the licensing act. Therefore, when an application goes to a committee. Unless, unless they're brilliantly enlightened, which some are, they will, they will decide based on the application's reference to the four conditions of the license. Yeah, and I think there's some hope on the horizon here. I've recently been writing a bid for a client of mine where we were looking at value engineering 
And it was actually saying, give your response in relation to commercial value and also social value. And it was the first time I'd actually seen social value brought into that kind of context. So that's, and this is from procuring body that's looking to deliver 400 homes. So I think there is hope that's coming through, but at the rate it's coming through, is it going to be enough? Are we going to lose another 100, 200 music venues before this happens? Probably. That's, that's the problem here is that there's not, a, not enough haste currently with trying to make these changes. But for Wes, for... for, for companies that are looking to measure social value and this is something that's increasingly being set out by people in cities urban developers investors what what are some of the steps they should be taking to accomplish that so if i'm looking at coming into the center of london and creating a, a mixed use development that's going to have housing and office space and some cultural space what are some of the steps that that you would advise me to take Forget calculators. You can't measure social value in this context using a calculator. There's some great social value calculator tools out there. It, they can't be used for measuring this. You need to engage with your stakeholders. That's the way to measure it. You need to pick loads of qualitative data. You need to create loads of great case studies. Refer back to you know lessons learned from bad projects, lessons learned from good projects. But it is engaging stakeholders a principle fundamental of getting that data. And then you can measure it. Because once you've spoken to your stakeholders, you can actually work out the impact you've had on their lives. And that's the trouble is that in a planning application concept, whether it be you know who really thinks about a pop-up theatre that pops up in a meanwhile space and the impact that has had to the hundreds of visitors that have gone through with the grass to whether a planning application should be consented or not. It's not considered currently. So that's the bit where, you know, developers do probably have to get more encouragement and more sort of incentives from mm. the local authority who are passing judgment on the decision whether they'll get a planning application or not. So this start, that let's, let's bring you in. So in, in terms of your work with Kensington and Chelsea Council in West London, how how has that gone? I mean, they're obviously, you know, they, they obviously have a, a ton. There's a, 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 you know, Chelsea has a, an absolutely really deep rich history of, of culture music art you know all the music that emanated from from the king's road in the 60s through to you know the Kadokan hall obviously some amazing concerts and and you know, other things like that the, the royal albert hall what, what's your experience working there and and how does the the council engage with what you do well, it's been a bit of a frustrating climb to this point. Um, I think what's been happening since Grenfell is that I think the council's woken up and um, there's been a lot of positive change. And I'm doing what I'm doing as a result, I think, because people have been looking at ways to maybe improve the image of Kensington and Chelsea because the, the, what you're talking about is the yesteryears. This is the generation that brought Ken, King's Road to, to the world stage. Suddenly you've got the Rolling Stones, you've got all these exciting things. But I also wanted to mention about this, the, the Windows project. It didn't become um, this project as it is not right now, artists decorating the spaces. Initially it was going to be pop-up spaces. And we came to a problem, which is the licensing problem, and I, I'm sure you're aware of this you can't use an empty space without paying rates and I've been doing this for 20 years I've been using unusual spaces for creative engagement for 20 years and we always had battles with landlords about using their space which is actually making a street really unattractive and people want to use it because they want to put up shows and you know to put an exhibition together usually costs the organizer just like you were talking about music to produce music it costs a fortune to be able to then generate income from it it's the same thing to do an art exhibition you have to to invest very, a lot of money. A lot of artists don't have that kind of money. Hence, it was a solution for a problem for both sides to win-win. An empty space, making the area look really drag, draggy, bad shit. So what do you want to change? 
Well, the thing is, this has been a long time coming. We should have a different way of approaching temporary use of a space that's empty. So come in with creative minds, use that space, don't charge them rates. They're already investing their time and they're investing their money, hard-earned money for nothing. So I mean, rates moratorium for any kind of creative use. I mean, that seems really sensible. It makes, makes absolute sense. And also, landlords are really scared of giving away their spaces. We need to give them reassurance that one is going to be secure, two, nobody's going to die because actually health and safety is really important. So you do have to have some governance that your place and your space is going to be okay. But I think... Airbnb was a uh, was a game changer in this sense because if you look at people giving away their spaces and Gumtree, you were talking about that earlier. So people sharing spaces, actually, the majority of the time, 99% of the time, everything goes well. But it's just that 1% that goes really badly. So you do need that little bit of safety net, but then you also have to admit that now is the time for us to look at the, the way we use temporary spaces and we're going to use them more and more as time goes and we're going to use them for creative projects and we do need to kind of move on really quickly with this. And, and Shane, in terms of kind of coming back to this this measurement piece, which I know, you know you're, you're obviously very keen on um, and, and, and thinking about a lot of these ESG strategies that, that large businesses have, that municipalities have, that basically everybody has, right, from Microsoft to, to GLA, how does the, the music sphere fit into that? So if someone's got an ESG strategy, where, where does, where within the S or the G or the E, in fact, does, does, does helping music fit in? How does that give them brownie points in that category? I think it's it's no different to any other community use. So from a S perspective, I guess music music's not the answer to everything. Music is just something that needs to be considered at the same level that art needs to be considered or film or whatever else. Um, so I think... But how do you measure it? What's the number? So if I'm legal in general who you've worked with, what yeah. is it that I want out of the process? Um, and, and what is it that I'm telling my, my shareholders? Well, I think on the on the social side, first off, it is com community engagement. So, you know, bums in seats or kids on mics or whatever it's going to be. Um, that can be measured in terms of the program. Number of dead guitar strings. Number of dead guitar strings. Second, and maybe this is slightly cynical, is, you know, ease of, ease of um, your process through planning. Uh, to move move forward with a particular. That's experience. a bit of a cynical point, though, isn't it? So it's like yeah, but that's get what... kids playing microphones, and guitars to save a few quid on planning. Is that is that a message? Uh, it's I, not I, the message, but that's the yeah. truth. Well, I, I think I jump in on that point. And I think there's a real <laughs> definition here between, as you said, bums on seats, social value outputs against social value outcomes. Because ultimately, we are so obsessed with measuring outputs, like how many people have been through this building. You could have 100 people go through a building and not one person in that 100 has had any benefit from it at all. You can have one person go through that building and it completely changes their lives and they go inspire a thousand more people to go add more value to the world. We don't do enough to You're distinguish the two. You're never going to know that, though, are you? That, it is hard. Like, you know, for, you know, mm. you know the, the most successful artist in, the hist in, in UK history of the last 10 years is Ed Sheeran. And he started out performing in places where he wasn't allowed to perform. He played illegally on the street. He was a busker. And we have worked with a number of uh, developers and a few of our partners as well on street performance and busking strategies. There's obviously busk in London. It is social. It is a good point. Is how many of those, even if one becomes Ed Sheeran, that makes up for fifty thousand. He pays a lot of tax. Yeah. Well, you look at well, you look at, you look at the grime scene. You look at those artists that actually work 
relentlessly in sort of youth violence and youth crime and how much credit is given to those guys in regards to the amount of social value they're creating by stopping young people going out and stabbing each other and they do none of that's giving any credit so and it's a very good point and this is i think this is yeah. something that, that i mean i've, I've talked and you can about measure it. that by the way you can measure the number of young people not reoffending, not going back into the system you can put a, a price on you know how many how much it costs to have someone in prison for a year how much it costs to do a court case how much it costs to have someone arrested by the police you can quantify that well, so there are there are elements of actually how you can bring those social value measurements in but ultimately it's not all about capturing the kind of you know the cost actually it's the positive value they're it's, creating as well which, which is harder to measure we all you know when sometimes when we're I think we're all quite we we all feel privileged in in certain respects because once we get to a place where we want to go we kind of forget how we got there and one of the things that we have seen in music, and it's hard to quantify, is this is the concept of role models. It's it's when an artist becomes successful, how does that impact all of their fans who now see an artist and look up to an artist? And especially artists that come from communities where their fans look like the artist and they live in those communities. And that's and, a problem now, isn't it? Because there's a lot of artists that, that actually cut through, have come to some art school, they've got posh parents that are in the industry that have bankrolled them through it. And but, there is but, that, there is a disconnect growing in, yeah, in, in the music industry. But it's, no, well, that's it's a, it's a gross simplification, you know, uh, in the... Well, it's not. I mean, how many, how many breaking artists in the UK music scene in the last years have generally come, for, come, come through, through yeah, you know, the actual old school way of, of performing? Well, but there is first. no such thing as the old school way because it's what? old school. For, 14 of the top 20 hits in the UK last year were hits on TikTok first. Not all of them are public school educated. They're just kids on TikTok making art on their phones. The way that ki- the way that people consume art now, and the way that we consume art, the four of us, we aren't everybody. That's that's one thing. And and I feel that and bringing this back to social value and developers, I don't have an answer for this. But the problem is is that the the people who are designing space and the people who are using space are not the same people. And I feel that there is, there but that's, is a great, that's what a disconnect that's is. That's the disconnect. And, and, but I think, but, where's the, but the point I want to try and bring out here is that... Not trying uh, to be I, difficult. No, no, but be, <laughs> as, be as obstinate as you want, Shane Shapiro. It's totally fine. But the point I'm making here is, is that I think um, it, it's, it's very easy just to say, oh, look, you know, we've created a pop-up. We've got some artists in. They've sold some expensive shoes. They've made some bespoke handbags out of bits of old newspaper or whatever it is. And I don't mean to be demeaning of that, but I'm just sort of being a little bit yeah. di- difficult to make the point. But the point I'm making is that actually, if you think about Chelsea, Kensington, Chelsea, like where I live in Islington, these hugely polarized boroughs, some of the most polarized urban communities in the world. You've got rich living side by side with poor. And as you said, Vistalia, Grenfell shone a right big spotlight on this stuff. And also it's a very divided borough. And what's been happening because of what you've just been saying about access and about inclusion of all these young minds in... In, in who makes decisions and how they make them. We've been losing a lot of young talent in Kensington and Chelsea. And what's happening now and why I'm beginning to do more work, more visible work in Kensington and Chelsea is because they're thinking about this. How are we going to pull in young talent? How are we going to do more risky stuff? How are we going to innovate? And the only way you're going to innovate is if, you, if you've got everybody in the room, not just one voice. And, and that's the thing, Wes, we're kind of coming back to what we were talking about before in terms of, of, of the diversity within planning again it's an easy phrase to try out everyone bangs on about placemaking they bang on about diversity but you know and you know 
coming back to it, as you were saying, how do you make sure that, that these things are genuine when we're defunding, uh, you know, we're defunding a lot of children's services, no one's supporting the sorts of facilities that, that bring some of these kids to the table. And as you correctly said, you can absolutely put a price on, on kids not getting stabbed. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, a really good example of something I've been working on recently, I work with a um, charity called Rough Squad. They are set up, have you heard of them before? Um, them, and, yeah. and they basically do an amazing amount of work with young people. I proposed to a developer recently about working with this organisation around a commercial unit and space that they had that they wanted to give away pro bono for sort of a 20-year peppercorn rate. And they were like, oh, rough squad. That doesn't sound like we want to have them on our planning application. And I get their point as a developer because actually they know that if they're going to present it to local authority in a planning um, application, local authority would be like, hmm, rough yeah, squad. Brigade but, like that, but ultimately, they? it's like, go back and see what these people actually do. These are 100% the people you want to be having in that building, in that space. Because actually what they will be doing is taking away all the antisocial behavior, all the kind of issues that developers feel around, you know, values being dropped because of, you know, the, the area that they're developing in might not be, you know, in the middle of an affluent area. It might be somewhere on the edge of a regeneration area. But actually, you know, you've got to provide the young people that live in those areas yeah. with things to do. And what, what's build- the issue? Is it, is, it, is it a class issue? Is it a race issue? Is it, well, is it just it's, it's a mix of everything. It's, it's, a, it's yeah. amazing that, you know, we have, we have this conversation about how we have to try to kind of I don't know, nudge our way into changing things. We have to try to, sorry, we have to talk closer to the mic. We have to try to propose social value as an indicator, yet we're still, instead of saying, how do we invest in this? Maybe if we ask these large landowners to not, uh, you know, to be domiciled and pay their tax, maybe that we could invest in these communities a lot that, of landowners are i mean i think i think in, in, uh, let me start you now i mean i think uh, let, let's be clear i think a lot of a lot of landowners do i think there's a bigger problem you certainly say with, with tech companies based over in Luxembourg yeah, very much and tech but it's it's i i feel like we you know i i hope that covid brings a reordering of what's important and what's important is far more than the you know it's it's obviously shareholder value monetary value of course that 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 always will remain important, but we can't try to just propose social changes for monetary value. As I think what's is saying, I think that we have to propose social changes for social value. Mm, but for Sally, do you think those can be aligned? I mean, that's that's the thing. We we talk about these things in in in, in you know slightly as if they're separate things. Yeah, yeah. I I, I really I've, this is something I've been really interested in for for years and years. And I think for me, the art, the reason why I got into the arts is because I'm using this as a tool to start those conversations. They enable people to not be so scared of the conversation about policy, about the, the rates, about sort of the things how the how things you used to be, you're allowed to experiment a bit more. So um, yeah, I, I think with the with the developers, are, they're beginning to see that they need a people and the social impact um, to live and enjoy those areas that they're developing. So they've started investing exactly into these cultural activities more and more. Um, so I'm seeing a really positive change that we're finally building cities for people, not for industry. And this has been an, a long time coming. It was always about driving, pro- driving profit. And now we're thinking about how do we make cities where people actually want to live and stay and enjoy. Mm. Look, let, let's just wrap things to a close, guys. So I'd like each of you to give me one thing 
that that you'd like to change um, within the UK system, whether it's on licensing, planning, rates. Just as one thing that that coming off of this, if you know, if we publicise this podcast, we share it around with people that that you'd like to maybe engage a bit of debate and a bit of momentum behind changing. So, so Wes, let's start with you. I mean, look, personally, I'm a massive advocate for social value being at the heart of planning, and it isn't currently. I mean, recently with the white paper reforms, the social value word wasn't even mentioned through the whole document, and that kind of shows a problem that we're not even addressing it at the senior policy level. So therefore, we need to actually recognise the value of art and culture as a social value in any development that comes forward. Shane? Do you think introduce a fifth pillar of licensing to recognise culture and cultural value in the licensing system? and have uh, a cultural plan um, in, relation at, in relation to how we're, we're planning towns and cities. Because for example, we, we focus on our landscape, but we ignore our soundscape. Maybe we should have a soundscape strategy as much as a landscape strategy. Yeah, as well. I'm down with that. Vestalia, what, what's, your, what's your takeaway? Well, I think we can look to the past and I really love the fact that we can look at benchmarking. So what does good look like? And also, so the Romans used to build cities and they, they used to be always a, sort of a fountain and the spaces were used for commercial and social use. And on the second floor, you would have people who lived there. So I think we can go back to that formula, maybe look at that formula, why it worked. And um, really think about how our cities are built for the for the well-being sense, for for the for the use first, and then for everything else. You know, Cadogan. I've been working with Cadogan. They've been a fantastic sponsor for Kensington and Chelsea Art Week. They've invested a lot of effort in creating a, a, a well-being space, and they've invested into sustainability and how what sustainability looks like in, in the twenty years time, and how people are going to engage in our in our yeah, environment. Yeah, they're a great great example of a forward-thinking landlord aren't they Cadogan Estate yeah and I've been I've been a local resident for many many years and at some point about 20 years ago when I was living there um, that area of Sloan Square was, wasn't actually as engaged as it is now and they've developed Duke of York Square and Sarcher Gallery and it's a completely different environment it really really works well, it's a great point there, Vistalia, and, and absolutely partnerships are going to be the way to go and, and certainly a lot more progressive thinking like the, the that you, you describe in, in Chelsea is going to be the, the name of the game going forward. But look, thank you guys. Fantastic conversation. We've covered tons of ground um, and, and absolutely look forward to, to catching up and following up on some of these things. And, and we should certainly try and make a, a bit of noise on, on some, of these, some of these wants and needs to sort out licensing planning rates and 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 as wes says um ensuring that social value plays much more of a role in urban planning so thank you to wes from searbridge thank you to shane from sound diplomacy and thanks to vistalia from kensington and chelsea our week i've been andrew teacher from blackstock consulting thank you very much for listening uh we're going to have a few more episodes in our esg series over the next few days um and you can continue to subscribe to propcast on apple spotify thanks for listening we'll see you soon